0: Thank you for being here uh, in worship with us today, and if you're in our overflow room or if you're watching us online, uh, thank you for joining us as well. If you're a fan of baseball, you undoubtedly know the name Yogi Berra. Uh, He played with the New York Yankees for 18 seasons, uh, from the late 1940s to the mid-1960s. He anchored the team at Catcher, uh, was a clutch hitter, and actually played in 14 different World Series, holds a number of records uh, applying to those World Series, records that still hold Uh, Today, But even if you're not a fan of baseball, you likely know the name Yogi Berra. He has become popular in the wider culture Uh, for the statements that he would make to the press. uh, These pithy, quirky, uh, many times very confusing statements, but that somehow had this um, understated wisdom, almost unintentional wisdom. Uh, Here are a few of the statements. If you're not familiar with Yogi Bear, here are the few of the things that he said that may leave you scratching your head, but then later you may go, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Um, Here's one. Always go to other people's funerals, but otherwise they won't come to yours. Makes sense, right? Better go. Uh, You can observe a lot just by watching. You'll get this stuff later, I promise you. It'll hit you at lunch. Oh, yeah. The future ain't what it used to be. We're lost, but we're making good time. That describes every family vacation that I've been on. And you wouldn't have won if we'd beaten you, obviously. Okay, his two most famous statements are, number one, when you come to a fork in the road take it. This one has been quoted at graduation ceremonies, at commencement exercises, often by a speaker who is encouraging those who are heading off to college or going out in life saying, hey, when you have to make a decision, when you come to this crossroads, just make the best decision you can and it will work out. Like Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I actually saw an interview with Yogi Berra years ago on 60 Minutes, back when people watched live television and In that interview, the reporter asked Yogi Bear about this particular statement. Why did you say that? And he said, it was because I lived in this house that was on a circular street at the end of this road, and there was one way in and one way out, and I was giving someone directions, and I said, when you come into that road, when you hit the fork in the road, take it, because I lived at the other end, and it didn't matter if you went right or left. Take the fork, you'll get to my house. However, people have taken it and they have applied it to making decisions in life. That's the, the first quote of Yogi Bear that's very famous. The second one is it's deja vu all over again. Reportedly, he made this statement in 1961 during a Yankees game when he saw Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle hit back to back home runs. It's a little bit redundant, but it kind of puts an exclamation point on the fact that, man, that just happened and it's happening again. So why do I start this sermon this morning with a little trivia about Yogi Berra? It is because this last statement of his, I am stealing this morning for the title of the sermon today. Uh, We have been in a series on the life of David, and for David today, it's deja vu all over again. He is facing the exact same situation that he faced uh, that we saw just a few weeks ago. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26. Uh, 1 Samuel is in your Old Testament. comes right after the little book, of, uh, little book of Ruth, which comes right after Judges. If you get to 2 Samuel, Samuel, you've gone too far. If you're new with us today, let me take a moment just to catch you up. Uh, this series is called Sins and Stones, and it's on the life of David, who is the second king over Israel, who lived about 1,000 years before Christ, about 3,000 years ago. Uh, David reigned after a man named Saul, who was the first king over Israel. And so far in this series, we've seen that Saul started off his reign very well, very strong. He was faithfully following God, and yet at a certain point, his heart drifted. And he began to get outside of the will of God, and he drifted so far away from God that God finally rejected Saul and his entire family line as king over Israel. So God anoints David outside of Saul's family to be the next king of Israel. The only problem, and it was a big problem for David, was Saul was still in power. David was anointed, but he did not realize uh, that position as king. In fact, it would be more than a dozen years from the moment that he was anointed to the time that he actually took the throne. During that time, Saul decided that since David was not part of his family line, And David was set to be the next king over Israel. What Saul could do is hunt down and kill David, and that would change the future that he would be able to then have his sons sitting on the throne of Israel. So in this series, we've seen Saul go after David time and time again. A few weeks ago, we saw David go to this place called En Gedi. It's in the desert in Israel near the Dead Sea. David and about 400 of his men go hide out in this place called En Gedi. Saul hears of it. He brings an army of men, 3,000 soldiers, in pursuit of David. They get to En Gedi, and Saul suddenly has to go to the bathroom. He goes into a cave for a little bit of privacy by himself. Out of all of the caves in En Gedi, and there are hundreds dotted along the hillside there, Saul picks the one cave where David and his men were hiding back in, in the cave, deeper in the cave. Saul comes in unarmed, no bodyguard to protect him. His men whisper to David, this is it. God has delivered him into your hands. Take your sword, drive it through his ribcage, and you will be done with Saul. You'll get to reign as king. You won't have to run for your life anymore. This is your moment, David. Kill him. But David says, no. No. I'm not the one to do that. God needs to handle Saul. I will not lay a hand on him. And David does not take Saul's life. Today for David, it's deja vu all over again. He faces almost the exact same scenario. So if you've got a Bible, it's 1 Samuel 26. I will not read the whole passage. I'll summarize a little bit of it for you. Um, and then we'll make some applications. So let's start in verse 1. Here's what we read. Now, some men from Ziph came to Saul at Gibeah to tell him, David is hiding on the hill at Hakalah, which overlooks Jeshimon. Now, most of the time, we're going to read through a verse like this and just kind of breeze through it. We'll assume that the men from Ziph were just a bunch of tattletales who went and told Saul all about David and where he was hiding. However, what we learn later on is, is that these men were part of the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Judah also happened to be the tribe that David was from, which meant these guys were relatives of David. They were his cousins. They were his family members. In fact, David was hiding out in the region where they lived, thinking, well, surely my family will protect me from Saul, and yet they betrayed him, likely to get uh, to curry favor with King Saul, they go to Saul and say, Hey, you want David, we can tell you exactly where he's hiding. He's right here among us. Verse 2. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's elite troops and went to hunt him down in the wilderness of Ziph. 3,000 elite troops meant it was three units of 1,000 soldiers each And these guys were some bad dudes. These guys were the soldiers who were the very best of Saul's army. These were the Navy SEALs and the Green Berets and the Delta Force. Saul gathered all of them together and said, "'Come on, you guys are coming with me. We're going to get David.'" "'Saul camped along the road beside the hill of Hakalad near Jeshimon, where David was hiding. When David learned that Saul had come after him into the wilderness,' He sent spies out to verify the report of Saul's arrival. So he gets word Saul and these elite forces are coming. David sends out spies to to basically verify, hey, is this real? Is Saul really coming after me? Spies come back with a report. Verse 5, David slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around. Saul and Abner son of Ner, the commander of his army, were sleeping inside a ring formed by the slumbering soldiers. So get the picture, 3,000 elite soldiers. They set up camp in this certain place, and what they do is very strategic. They form a ring around Saul. Their number one job was to protect their king, to protect Saul. They form this ring around Saul. Saul sleeps in the middle, and his personal bodyguard, Abner, sleeps next to him to make sure that nobody, nobody, nobody could get to Saul. David then sees them sleeping there, sees them camp there, and says, Hey, I've got a a great idea, guys. Kind of a harebrained idea, but just roll with me here. Would one of you guys volunteer to go in there with me, where all these elite soldiers are? I mean, these guys are bad. Just one of them can take you out. There are 3,000. Any of you want to go? David asked Ahimelech the Hittite, who apparently said no way, and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother. I'll go with you, Abishai replied. Let's have a little fun. So they go. Verse 7. So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found him asleep with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying asleep around him. So get the picture, 3,000 soldiers, a ring around Saul, his personal bodyguard there, every single soldier, including Abner and Saul, all asleep. Verse verse 8, God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time, Abishai whispered to David. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. They tiptoe through the camp. They snake their way through the sleeping soldiers until they get to Saul. Saul's asleep on the ground. His spear is there. Abishai whispers to David, God has delivered him into your hands. It's deja vu all over again. They're back in the cave. The men are whispering to David. Saul is in here unprotected. Now is your chance. Abishai says the same thing. Now is your chance. And if you don't want to kill him, let me do it. I'll take the spear, I'll drive it through him, I won't have to strike twice. I love that line, meaning that first strike is going to pin him to the ground. He'll be dead, dead, dead. I won't have to do it again. I mean, that's a great line. I tell you people all the time, read your Bible. It's got these great, phenomenal, interesting stories and really great lines. I mean, that's like a Clint Eastwood line. (laughs) Load the revolver. Why are you just putting one bullet in? One bullet's all I need. Now, that's what Abishai says. One strike, man, that's it. He's dead. Here's David's reply. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he will die of old age or in a battle. The Lord forbid that I should be the one he had to, to kill the one he has anointed But take his spear and that jug of water beside his head, and then let's get out of here. So verse 10 is a key here. Abishai is saying, hey, let me kill him. Let me kill him. Let me kill him. And David here says, no, this is not my job. Even if you do it and I don't do it, I'm guilty because I'm giving you the green light to take that spear and thrust it through him. This is God's job, not mine. Meaning, maybe he'll die of old age. I don't know. Maybe he'll die in a battle. I don't know, but God needs to handle this, not me. Then he says, hey, just because we're not going to kill him doesn't mean we can't have a little fun here. So grab his spear, grab the jug of water, and then, you know, there are a bunch of soldiers around. Let's get out of here. All right, verse 12. So David took the spear and jug of water. That was key. By taking the spear, that was symbolically taking Saul's ability to defend himself. By taking the jug of water, that was symbolically taking uh, Saul's ability to live out in the desert, to survive the desert heat. So David took the spear and jug of water that were near Saul's head. Then he and Abishai got away without anyone seeing them or even waking up because the Lord had put Saul's men into a a deep sleep. Verse 13, David climbed the hill opposite the camp until he was at a safe distance. So They're all camped in this certain area. There's a ring around Saul. David and Abishai snake their way back out of the camp. There's a valley on the other side. They go down the valley up to a hill that's at a safe distance away. In case those soldiers wake up, they've got enough of a head start to be able to get away. Then he shouted down to the soldiers and to Abner son of Nair, Wake up, Abner. Abner wakes up, says, Who is it? Here's David's reply Well, Abner, you're a great man, aren't you? You're just dripping with sarcasm here. David, uh, aren't you? David taunted, Where in all Israel is there anyone as mighty as you? So why haven't you guarded your master, the king, when someone came to kill him? So this first verse, verse 15, it's all sarcasm. Then David turns and is very serious. This isn't good at all. I swear by the Lord that you and your men deserve to die because you failed to protect your master, the Lord's anointed. In other words, Abner, you had one job. One job, that's it. To protect King Saul, that's your only job, and you have failed at this job. And because you have failed, you deserve to die. And because all of these elite soldiers have failed to protect King Saul, all of you deserve to die. Look around. Where are the king's spear and the jug of water that were beside his head? In other words, if you don't believe me, if you think I've just shown up to this hillside and I'm making all of this up, Remember the spear that was there when you went to sleep? Remember the jug of water that was there when you went to sleep? Yoo-hoo, here it is. Look, proof that I was standing right beside your master and could easily have killed him. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and called out, Is that you, my son David? And David replied, Yes, my lord the king. Abner may not have recognized David's voice, but Saul certainly did. Saul was out to kill David. He was pursuing David. He took these elite forces to hunt David down and to kill David. But his history with David was was complicated. Uh, He almost had this bipolar relationship with David. He hated David. He was jealous of David. David was set to be the next king. He hated that. He wanted David dead. And yet, he and David had been close. David was a personal bodyguard of Saul at one point and did a great job protecting his life, much better than Abner. David was a general for Saul in the army and brought Saul's army success after success after success. David had been the personal musician To King Saul, and whenever David played, Saul felt better. Saul was relieved of his anxiety and his depression. And most of all, David had been his son-in-law. David was married to King Saul's daughter. He, He was there for family meals. He was there at the high holy days sitting at the same table with King Saul. They had a complicated relationship, and Saul wanted him dead. But he had this affection for David, and he calls out here to him, Is that you, my son David? David replied, Yes, my lord, the king. Then skip down to verse 21. Then Saul confessed, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you, for you valued my life today. I have been a fool and very, very wrong. David explains to King Saul across that valley, Hey, Look, obviously, I am not your enemy. I could have killed you. I had the chance. I was right there, and I did not strike you. And that statement from David makes Saul wake up, and he confesses, I'm wrong. I've sinned, and I will no longer try to harm you. Saul has made this promise before, but this time he keeps it. This actually ends Saul's pursuit of David. And from this point forward, Saul leaves David alone. So what do we take from all of this? How does this story apply to us today? What what impact does something like this have on our lives? Every single day of your life, you are faced with the decision to follow God's will for your life or to follow your own will for your life. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a follower of Christ... The longer you follow Christ, the more hopefully those two sync up, and there are times that God's will and your will are in perfect alignment together. So when I'm talking about um, following your will versus God's will, I mean those times that God's will is one thing, and you don't want to do it. You've got yourself on the throne of your life. It's your will. It's your flesh that's crying out, and you want to do what you want to do, and you don't care what God says. The Bible has a word for that. The Bible calls that sin. And that word in the Greek literally means to miss the mark. The picture is like that of an archer firing an arrow at a target. When he fires the arrow at the target, what is he trying to hit? The bullseye right in the middle. Anything that does not hit the bullseye is a miss. Sometimes it's a little miss, you know, the circle right outside the bullseye. Sometimes it's a big miss, misses the target completely, but any of those are a miss. Only hitting the bullseye perfectly is is not sin. Everything outside of that is a miss, and it is a sin. That is what is true in our lives. Every one of us have sinned. Every one of us have, have missed the target, have missed the bullseye at some point in our lives. That is why Jesus Christ had to come. So Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh, as a human, and throughout his life, he never missed the bullseye. Every single time, with every word, with every thought, with every action, he hit the bullseye every single time. And then he went to a cross, and on the cross, he paid the punishment for every time you've missed the bullseye. Every time, I've missed the bullseye. And more than that, not only did he pay that price, but when you become a follower of Christ, not only do you get the penalty paid for every time you missed that bullseye, but the way that God views you is that throughout your life, every single decision and word and action is you hitting the bullseye each time. In fact, you get not only your sin paid for, but you get the righteousness of Christ. Like as the archer, every shot hit the bullseye, dead center of the target. Relationally and spiritually in the eyes of God, that's what it means to follow Christ. However, we know, practically speaking, that even after you follow Christ, there are still times that you miss the bullseye. Sometimes there are little misses. You just hit the circle around the bullseye. Sometimes there are big misses. Little misses have little consequences, Big misses have big consequences. You hit the circle around the bullseye, little consequences, miss the target completely, big consequences. You drive five miles per hour over the speed limit, you get pulled over, you get a little fine, little ticket, little consequences. You drive 100 miles per hour over the speed limit and you get caught, big fine, big lawyer's fees, big jail time. right? We understand that. We all sin, but little sin, little consequences. Big sin, big consequences. When is it in your life that you are most likely to make decisions that do not line up with God's will? When are you most likely to sin? There are three times that you are wide open to sin in your life. The first is this. When I've been hurt. When I've been hurt... I am many times wide open to choosing my own path rather than God's path. When a friend has hurt you or a family member has hurt you, they've said something, they've done something to you, many times your reaction to that will be a sinful reaction. Either you'll try to get revenge against them or you'll feel sorry for yourself and in your self-pity you'll return to habits are ways that are not healthy and they're not helpful just to try to bring yourself some level of comfort. By the way, it never works in the long run. You can go and have the pity party and do those things, but later you'll you'll regret it. So when I've been hurt, number two, when I'm scared, fear will drive you to choose your ways and your will rather than God's ways and God's will. Many times I'll have a discussion with someone who says, you know... I know what the Bible says about tithing. I know what the Bible says about that. I understand that that is God's will, but I just can't do it. And I'll say, why? Why is it you can't do it? And they'll say, because I'm scared. There's fear. I'm scared if I follow what God wants me to do, that at the end of the month I won't have enough to pay the bills or I won't have enough to get the things that I want. What's driving that? Fear. So when I've been hurt, I'm open to sin, when I'm scared, I'm very open to sin. And number three, when I'm tired, when I'm physically exhausted, when I've been sick and I'm exhausted from that, when I haven't slept much and I'm exhausted from that, when you've got little kids at home and you're exhausted from that. When I'm tired, then I'm open to sin. If you're a teenager in here, this is why your parents give you a curfew. The later it gets, the more tired you get, the more decision-making drops, good decision-making drops, you're open to making bad decisions. When I've been hurt, when I'm scared, and when I'm tired. Now, here's what's so amazing. David, at this point in his life, faced all three. At this point, he had been hurt by his own family members who betrayed him to Saul. He was scared. 3,000 elite forces breathing down his neck. David may have had 600 men but they were more like a militia. He did not have the Green Berets and the Delta Force fighting on his side. He was certainly scared, and David was tired. He had been on the run for a long time from one place to the next, never knowing where he was spending the night, where he would rest his head the next night. All three of those applied to his life. So he sneaks inside the camp. He's standing there beside Saul, who's fast asleep, Abner, his personal bodyguard, who's fast asleep, 3,000 soldiers who are all out. And Abishai says to him, now's your chance. Now's your chance. Kill him. If you don't want to do it, I'll be happy to do it. Take his life. Everything in David's flesh screamed out, do it. The circumstances around him screamed to him, do it. His friend Abishai whispered to him, do it. Everything in him wanted to do it. But notice David's response. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday or he will die of old age or in a battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has killed. Anointed. Here's what David would say Yes, Saul, he deserves all of this. Yes, I really want to do it. But understand this would be outside of God's will. That if I do this, I'm taking matters into my own hands, and this would be outside of God's will. And at this point, I don't know what the consequences would be, but I don't want to find out. You see, at this point, David, he only had a little bit of the picture. He understood, he knew that this was God's will for him to not shed uh, the blood of Saul, for him to remain innocent. But that's really all that he knew. You and I now, 3,000 years removed, we're able to read the story, we're able to look back, and we can understand what the consequences would have been if that day David had taken Saul's life. Had he done that, had he let Abishai pin Saul to the ground, here's what would have happened. The kingdom would have divided A few of those who are loyal to David would have gone with David, but the majority of the kingdom would have stayed with Saul's family line. They still loved Saul, many in the kingdom. They remembered that that Saul was God's anointed, that he was the first king, that he established them as a kingdom. And in his reign, he started off very well. Saul did much to help the people, and they remembered that and they would have gone with Saul's family line, and they would not have stayed with David. How do we know that? Because later, that's what happened anyway. Even though David never laid a finger on Saul, that's what happened anyway, and it actually took David a a little time to, to bring the kingdom back together. And he was only able to do it because he could say to the people, honestly, I didn't do this. I did not kill Saul. God took Saul's life. Here, here's what David was saying. When we're facing a choice, when we're facing the decision, do I go God's way or do I go my way? We only get a little bit of the picture. We, we only get what we can see right now, the circumstances now. We're limited by space and time, and we don't have the full picture. And do we really want to get to months from now, a year from now, five years from now, And look back and go, "Mm, I wish I'd followed God. I wish I had done what God wanted me to do, not what I want to do. In fact, here's what David was saying. This is on your message map. If you want to write this down. Following God means this. Following God's will, which is the question what, in God's way, which is the question how, at God's time which is the question when. So was it God's will for Saul to die and for David to become king? Yeah, it was. That was God's will. Was it God's way for David to be the one to kill him? No. God was going to handle it. Was it time at this point when Saul and all these men were asleep for Saul to die? No, it would come later. It was God's will and God's way at God's time was the was the story that ultimately benefited David's life? That was what he needed to follow. I, I think a a modern day equivalent in our time that's such a big part of our our culture is the issue of sex. So is it God's will? Absolutely. This is God's gift to mankind. Yeah, God created this thing. It's this wonderful, beautiful gift. Is it God's will? Yes. But it's got to be in God's way. What is that? Between a man and a woman in a committed uh, marriage, relationship, and in God's time. When is it? Well, after he says I do and she says I do. So it's not just God's will. It's God's will and God's way and God's time. Why is this so, so important for our lives? It's because you want to have a story one day where you look back and you go, oh, now I get it. Following God when I chose God's will and God's way and God's time It created the story that I wanted. Philip Yancey is an author and pastor and and writer, and he defines faith as this way. Faith is believing in advance what is only able to be seen in reverse. Meaning, trusting in God now when you can't see the full picture and you can't quite understand it all, that your story will be one that you'll look back on with fewer regrets when you say, God, I'm trusting you, I'm trusting you, I'm trusting you, even though I can't understand it all, even though I don't get the full picture and I don't understand all the circumstances, God, I'm going to follow your will in your way at your time because I want the story that I have, the story of my life that is written, to be one that I look back on with fewer regrets. How do you do that? God's will. In God's way, at God's time.